Now, we are beginning a little series, a mini-series in the middle of the year on Ecclesiastes. Now, how many of you, you are familiar with this book of Ecclesiastes? You can just raise up your hands. Familiar means you've read it, okay? Stretch all the way up so I can get a feel, okay? It really is about 20% of you, okay? Um, so, not... So many of you are familiar uh, with this book. It is found in the Old Testament. It is part of a larger body of scripture that we call the wisdom literature or the poetic books, right? Um, together, how many of you can name the other poetic books? Psalms, right? Psalms, what else? Proverbs, what else? Song of Solomon, yeah, what else? Uncle Job, right? Job, right? And Ecclesiastes. So these five makes up uh, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It was written during the time of pre-Jesus. So for those of you who are not so clear on the timeline, it is way, way, way pre-Jesus, okay? Um, now, Ecclesiastes is a difficult book to get into. In fact, I would say all of the wisdom literature is sometimes undercovered, not covered enough uh, from pulpits in churches everywhere. Okay, so it's a, it's a normal thing. We pray through the prophets, we preach through the Old Testament narrative and the New Testament epistles. Um, it's, and then we kind of assume that you will, you will deal with, with the wisdom literature um, in your own devotional space, right? And so last year, um, we decided that we would not let the wisdom literature go without attention. So we did a series on Song of Solomon. You all remember Song of Solomon last year, right? We did Song of Solomon last year. Uh, we did a short mini-series on the Psalms and the Proverbs as well. We did that last year and if you are interested to catch up on it, you can go to YouTube and if you just want to see, um, well, actually it's all documented on that poster over there by the entrance, right? And so we don't want to shirk from we don't want to shirk from doing the difficult things. Ecclesiastes is one of those difficult things. So, just very quickly, as a general tone, how many of, if you have to give me one word to describe the book of Ecclesiastes, what would that one word be? Vanity. Okay, I heard vanity. What other words? Meaningless. I heard meaningless. What else? depressing, okay? So, we had one person say, this book is all about vanity. Another person said, this book is about meaningless, right? Not that the book has no meaning, right? And one person said, the book is depressing, right? What else? All you who raised your hands just now, you are familiar with Ecclesiastes. One more word to describe Ecclesiastes. What's that? Futility. Futility. I heard a few more at the same time. Reflective, Okay. You're getting a feel, right? You can feel the flavor, okay? Um, now, this book can, if you read it through without, any, without the right lens, okay? It can be very, very cynical sounding. Extremely cynical tone, okay, to this book. Extremely, um, it can, okay. I don't say it's extremely depressing. It can sound depressing at some points, okay? Um, definitely sounds like an old jaded man um, trying to give old jaded man's advice to, to enthusiastic young men, right? And kind of like, young men, right? You haven't seen the woes I've been through. Let me tell you about the world, right? And so Ecclesiastes has that feel. 
Now, to begin with, it's got a strange title, right? Ecclesiastes is a strange title. It comes from the Greek word ecclesia. And ecclesia means the assembly, the gathering. So you are the ecclesia right now, right? You are the gathering of people. The Jews, however, don't call it Ecclesiastes. The Jews call this book Koheleth. Right? They call it Koheleth or Kohelet, right? Um, and Koheleth means the teacher. Okay? So it's interesting. I'm fascinated by how our thinking changes as we translate from language to language. For the for, for the Hebraic people, this book is about the teacher. For English speaking people, somehow we think about it as it's about the gathering of the people, right? But it's, so, so, so it's, I, I find that fascinating. You can definitely see the teacher, the Koheleth, in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, he introduces himself as I, the Koheleth, right? I, the teacher, you know? And then he goes on talking. Now, it's the, so much of this book hinges on how you see and interpret a few things right at the start. So I am going to do a bit more of an overview as I do this opening. In fact, as I was preparing for today, I felt like I could do two overview sermons just on Ecclesiastes alone because the substance of the book um, hinges so much on whether you approach it in in Jalan A or Jalan B, right? If you approach it in Jalan B, then all the substance gets interpreted through the lens of that approach. So I want to make sure we get ourselves onto the correct approach. The opening words of this book, Ecclesiastes, goes like this. Now, I don't mean to be pretentious and give you a lot of Hebrew words, okay? I purposely put some Hebrew words in because there are translation difficulties and I give you the original first, okay? But Koheleth means teacher, okay? The words of Koheleth, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Havel, Havelim, says Koheleth. Havel, Havelim, Hakol, Havel. Right? Now, it's totally Greek to you. Yes, wrong. It's totally Hebrew to you. Okay? <laughs> what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors under the sun? And then this, the, the entire scroll will open up and he continues to muse and continues to, to raise argument after argument that actually there is nothing to gain. You work so hard, also die, this thing like that, also everything Kong, you know, like, and, and then he goes on and on and he goes for 11 and a half chapters like that. Uh, you know, he, he just one after another. But everything does hinge on what Havel Means How many of you are familiar with the English translation that calls this vanity, vanity of all vanities? How many of you are familiar with the translation of Havel as the word vanity? You, you, you've seen that before? I heard Zillow say vanity, yeah? A long time ago, Pastor Chiu preached a uh, uh, um, uh, Ecclesiastes series in 2005 when I was 25, right? Um, uh, and... I gave away my age. Uh, and, and he was reading, if I'm not mistaken, from the K NKJV at the time, and it also used the word vanity. Vanity of all vanities, right? Um, now, 
The newer translations may say different things. The ESV continues to say vanity, okay? But the word vanity here, um, modern users don't hear the original use of the word vanity, okay? The word vanity is used to, ex to say it is all in vain. It is all in vain. You do so much, it was in vain. That's why it uses the word vanity that way, okay? Well, I remember hearing, it, hearing vanity used here for the first time and I thought it meant you do so much to make yourself look nice, right? That's what I thought. So I am not using the word vanity for today's purpose because I didn't want you to get that flavour that it was all about making yourself look very nice. It's not, okay? The word Havel does not mean that. How many of you are familiar with Havel translated as meaningless? Raise your hands. Raise your hand. Yeah, meaningless. Maybe a bit more common because the NIV translates it as meaningless. Okay? Okay, and some of you are laughing because you saw the Instagram post yesterday, right? Um, the NIV translates it as meaningless, but I've, meaningless is not the immediate meaning of Havel. Havel means something else. Havel is a Hebrew word which means vapor. It, lit, it actually means like a short breath. Havel means this. That's Havel, okay? So you can understand why the English translators find it difficult to translate, right, into, into English like, how, how, how do you translate that? Um, short breath, short breath, all is a short... Sounds a bit weird, right? Right? Sounds a bit weird. Or even if you were to say, vapour, vapour, all is vapour, you know? It, it, it's maybe a little too metaphorical. Now, if I were to say... Now, I've given you a bunch of other meanings that other scholars have attempted to say actually meaningless doesn't quite, it's maybe a bit too much of the interpreter's, the translator's bias is inside there. Maybe, okay, you get to meaningless at the end, right? But it's maybe more literally is vapor. Havel means something like smoke. Because when something like vapor or smoke, it's like you can see it. It's almost like a cloud. It's almost like you can touch it. It looks even at some points almost like it is solid and tangible. And then you reach your hand in and you grab for it and there's nothing. And that's the idea that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to communicate. That you reach in, it feels like you can touch and then just as you touch, there's nothing there. Just as you feel like you can contain it, it slips out of your hands. And just as you feel like you can be satisfied by it, it proves to be unsatisfying. So smoke is a bit like smoke, right? Um, vapour is a bit like smoke. And I like, I, I, I like the, um, the smoke as a kind of a slightly more metaphorical uh, um, example because in English today, we have um, uh, the layer, right? The flavour of saying that, oh, uh, that fellow's business went up in smoke. Right? Uh, we don't mean that the, the, the building literally burned down. When we say that this venture went up in smoke, we mean that it, it, was, it proved to be futile. It proved to be nothing. It burnt up in the end. Nothing came out of it. You know? So maybe smoke carries some of that flavour, but you can see from this slide, no one English word can really capture um, the word Havel, right? But it's a bit like mist. It's a bit like fumes. You know? and, and I quite like fumes because we sometimes say that you're running on fumes. It means that you're running on empty. You're actually running on nothing, right? Um, but Havel, 
also carries the impression that it is not just unattainable, it's also an enigma. It's also a mystery. It's also uh, something that's elusive. You try to touch it, you try to chase after it, you reach for it, and then you just can't quite get it. It keeps eluding you. You're trying to hold it, but it keeps slipping out of your hands. So it is certainly something that's unattainable. It's certainly something out of your reach. And fleeting. It's a bit like a mirage where you are in a desert and you're walking and you see an oasis in the distance and you're saying, there's water, there's water, let's go. And you just muster up all your strength to get to the water and you realise it was a mirage. There was no water in real life and you feel cheated by that illusion. That feeling of being cheated by the illusion is hevel. Nothing. I thought it was something, I got there there was nothing there, right? That's the meaning of Havel. So, if we have to choose one, I mean, it's up to you which one you want to choose. I'm just going to try to read it as smoke, right? Smoke. All is smoke. Nothing but smoke. That's one way to see it, okay? Now, you can, maybe the better way to think of it is just that there is no one English word. So, you can say, the words of Koheleth, son of David, king in Jerusalem... What does he say? Vapor and smoke, says Koheleth. Everything is futile. Everything is elusive. It is all a big, unattainable mystery. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors under the sun? Now, once we get that right, then we can enter the rest of the text. Now, the reason why I wanted to make sure we get that right is, is because the English word meaningless captures the end point. After you see that all these things is like that, then maybe your conclusion is it's meaningless. But I didn't want to take you there immediately. I wanted you to just feel that everything is just unattainable at this point. A more direct translation. Now, Ecclesiastes does wrestle with this problem, okay? Because after all your efforts, Koheleth is saying that what do you gain from it? So one of the things Ecclesiastes wrestles with is do all your efforts in this life gain you nothing in the end? Is there no gain after everything you've done and they reach the last of your days? Is there absolutely nothing for you to gain compared to the other fellow who goyang kaki and did nothing his whole life, right? He's going to ask this question over and over again. Let's read a little bit more to catch, catch the flavour of Ecclesiastes. It says here, All things are wearisome. Now, remember, I warned you already, huh? it can have a very cynical tone. It can sound very bitter. Just bear with us, okay? There are some bright spots in Ecclesiastes too, but not here. It says here, All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing, meaning... Tengok tak cukup, dengar tak cukup, you always need more, right? Um, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Elsewhere in chapter 2 it says, So I said to myself, What happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this also is futile. By the way, my base translation is the CSB, okay? The Christian Standard Bible. Um, 
and then I've replaced the Hebrew words, replaced with Hebrew words here and there. 16. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Therefore, I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for everything is futile and a chasing, a pursuit after the wind. Ecclesiastes wrestles with this question. Does wise and righteous living actually pay off in the end? Now, we're in church. We are taught from the first day we walked into church. Uh, we have taught from the first day we encountered someone who is a Christian that wise and righteous living does pay off in the end, right? Unless you, unless you weren't taught that, then I really, I really need to kind of gantong already, gantong because I've not been teaching you that, right? Um, but yes, we all learn in church that wise and righteous living does reward in the end. It pays off in the end. But the Koheleth is going to challenge this. Before you get to an answer, he doesn't want you to just give you a textbook answer. He is going to challenge you. He say, I'll tell you why this is a trouble. Because if you live wise, you live with righteous living, you die in the end. The fellow who lives like a fool, who lives wickedly, also die in the end. So what's the point? You know it's so much harder to live a moral life. You know it takes so much more effort to live righteously. Why? He's asking that question. And he won't let us off the hook until he makes us confront a lot of difficult questions. That's what the teacher is going to do. Now, when you look at the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you might be like, who wrote this? I saw just now, it says the Koheleth, son of David, king in Israel. Who is this guy? Son of David, king in Israel. Solomon is the common understanding, right? He doesn't bulat bulat say Aku Solomon, you know, he doesn't say that, okay? But he says he's son of David, king in Israel, and later you will see him saying that he is a collector of many proverbs and wise sayings. And so it's a no-brainer, most people will point to Solomon, okay? And I think it's quite safe to say that the Koheleth, okay, is Solomon. But the book has actually two different voices. Okay, so this is a bit literary thing. You should know this, okay? The book has two different voices. There is the voice of the unnamed author, and then there is the voice of the teacher. Okay? So the book opens with Son of David, right? King in Jerusalem, king in, in, in Israel. Now that is not that, that is the voice of the author. It's an unnamed author writing about a teacher. And then he writes all the teachings of the teacher in first voice. So it begins with this little sliver of the author's voice. And then immediately from verse 2 onwards, it's all the author's voice. You will see a lot of first voice, I did this, I saw this, I saw that. It's all Koheleth talking. It's all the teacher talking. And the teacher talks for 11 and a half uh, uh, um, chapters until chapter 12. Midway through chapter 12, he finishes his sermon. The teacher stops. And you know how he ends? Exactly like how he started. Havel! Havel! Right? Havelim! Hekol! Havel! He finishes that way. And then it's like the teacher exits. 
And then halfway, as the teacher exits, it's like the author comes in and says, now that you have heard what the teacher has said, let me summarize it for you. And at the end, the conclusion is this. So the author actually gives you his conclusion at the end of this, right? So that when you read Ecclesiastes, you, are not, you don't think it's all one voice. And I'll tell you, for me, when I heard Ecclesiastes, uh, read Ecclesiastes as a 25-year-old, um, I used to feel like, oh my gosh, your conclusion is so simplified. Like so... I don't know, what, what, what's the word? Uh, I was using the word yesterday. It felt like such a cop-out, you know, because he takes you through so many difficult questions, you know, and then his ending, his end, I, give you, I give away the ending. Uh, his ending is, ah yeah, in the end, uh, it all amounts to this. Just fear God, follow His commands. Just do that. And I remember, I remember as a 25-year-old, after he raised... All the he literally raises hell for me, right? Because I have to I have to deal with all his difficult questions, and then he gives gives this conclusion like, in the end, ah yeah, very simple one lah. Just fear God, do what He says. And I wasn't satisfied, you know. As a twenty-five year old, I was like, cannot be lah. It can't be so simple. You showed such a multi-layered version of the world, and then you give me such a simply simple answer. It's like, no, I want you to give me more, you know. It helped when I understood that the fellow giving all the difficult questions was the teacher. He occupied the stage, and he was teaching for 11 and a half chapters. Then he went off. And then the author came and summarized it for the teacher, right? So maybe that helps. I'll give you, show you an illustration. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore. This is the teacher's voice, right? And then at the very end, it says this, in addition to Kohelet being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. And then it's like commentary on the teacher, right? So you, you get the idea? Church, you all get the idea? All right? Now, now with that little bit of overviewing done, I want to show you, I need to be a bit pastoral, I need to give you three points, right? So if not, if not I, I, I can't eat lunch, okay? Um, three things, three things for you to take home today that we're going to engage in, right? Even as we look at the opening and the overview of Ecclesiastes. I want to talk about a resilient faith, okay? And I want to talk about risky games. And I want to talk about a robust death, Okay, and I was like, what is robust death? I, isn't all dying just very limp and frail and like, right? But no, no, there, 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 there are weak deaths and then there is a robust death, right? And we're going to go into this, right? Resilient faith, say resilient faith. Risky games and robust death. Now, some people will say, I've heard it said before, and maybe you've heard it said before as well, that... Solomon wrote Song of Solomon when he was young and full of energy and life and passion and hope. So the book feels very youthful. And then some, those same people will say that he wrote Proverbs when he was at the peak of his career, at the height of his wisdom, you know. Um, and then as he grew old and bitter and angry and, and all that, then he wrote Ecclesiastes, right? You know, that doesn't sit well with me. That doesn't sit well with me. I'll tell you why, okay? He, he, this is God's word, 
Okay? This is God's word. And so it doesn't quite sit well that you can say that, oh, when he was young, he had all these things to say, you know. Um, and then when he's old, uh, actually, those things uh, actually is very bitter one. You, you, don't, you don't have to really listen to it. Or, or you can say that, oh, then you have to deal with it. If this is true, this is true, this is also true, right? So, so to me, at any case, scholars all agree that at best, that's just a speculation because actually none of these uh, writings are dated, right? They are not dated. We do know Ecclesiastes was written towards the latter part of his life because he says that he's already been collecting many proverbs. So likely, the sequence is this coming after this. But when I thought about the way, the nature of the book of Proverbs, and I compared it to the nature of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's leave Song of Solomon aside for now. By the way, uh, if you go back and, and check the YouTube for Song of Solomon, the overview for it, you will see that even uh, Solomon authorship is not entirely obvious. Okay, I, I certainly don't not convinced that he is the male protagonist in Song of Solomon. But that's another day story. You can go back and check the YouTube out. If you compare Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they are very different books. Very different books. It's almost as if, in fact, when you compare the two, it's almost as if Proverbs is the one that was written when the man was young and full of hope and saw the world in equations of black and white. And then it is only later when he's tasted lots of pain and suffering and, and, and seen failures and all that, that he has a much more grey uh, 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 kind of lens or way of thinking about the world. Let me break the two down for you. Proverbs speaks of general wisdom for living, whereas Ecclesiastes speaks of general observations about life or about the world, right? So, they are both immediately doing different things. Now, Proverbs has a... The cause and effect is very black and white. It will tell you this, right? Live a righteous life, you will prosper. If you live a wicked life, you will fall into your own trap, right? It's got a very black and white way of thinking about morality, about cause and effect, Right? and consequence. Whereas Ecclesiastes has a very ambiguous, very grey way of looking at life. He will say, um, live a righteous life, die. Live a wicked life, also die. Right? So it's like, okay, okay, let's, let's look at this a little bit, right? Um, Proverbs can appear to be overly simplistic, and maybe even a little bit naive. Now, I'm not saying it is naive. I'm saying it can appear to be slightly naive. Like, yeah, you, you might hear, read the Proverbs and if you are world-weary, you'll be like, ah, no wonder all oh, you Christians not in the real world. You think that only righteous people, everything good happens to them. Example, contoh sahaja, right? Whereas Ecclesiastes can appear really bitter. It can appear really cynical and really jaded. After reading it too much, you feel like, I can't, I can't go on. I need to do something else, right? And of course, we need to know that Proverbs does not mean to overpromise you. And in the same way, Ecclesiastes does not mean to discourage you from things. In fact, quite the opposite. Both of them are doing, making general observations. They are making general observations. In fact, 
you will know from my Proverbs sermon last year that Proverbs are not meant to be laws. They are not meant to be prophecy. They are not meant to be promises. Or worse still, they are not meant to be formula. Okay? So if you think that they are formula, means I do this, I must get this outcome. Huh? Why? Because the Bible says so. Learn to read your Proverbs correctly, okay? The Proverbs are actually general good advice for living. Okay? And some of them generally prove true. Specifically for some people, it may not prove true, but generally they prove true. And they ultimately prove true. They ultimately prove it. So those are the proverbs. I think it's important. Um, and let me show you an example. Example I've been alluding to. Proverbs 11.8 says, The righteous one is rescued from trouble. In his place, the wicked one goes in. Right? Very black and white morality. Very black and white cause and effect. Righteous, rescued. Wicked, fall into the pit. You know, that the, that, that the, that the righteous was initially in. Right? Ecclesiastes, using the same motif, says something very different. There is a futility that is done on earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And then there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. Does Ecclesiastes undermine Proverbs? Can the Bible undermine itself? And if it does, then how can it stand? Right? So it doesn't. I want you to know, as we enter Ecclesiastes, you're going to read a bunch of things from the voice of someone who appears to be undermining other parts of the Bible. It is not. It is making certain observations about the world. It is challenging a very black and white worldview by bringing in a lot of ambiguity, a lot of grey, and a lot of real life, uh, not so clean cut. That is Ecclesiastes, okay? Now, the main thing is, as you read Ecclesiastes, you must consider this. Can your faith survive in an Ecclesiastes type of world? Or let me put it to you differently. If you have a very black and white proverb style of way of seeing the world, and you expect most things to have a cause and effect in a very clean-cut way. Those who follow and walk with God, everything will go well for them, right? And those who do bad things, uh, uh, they will definitely, bad things will happen to them. And then you go through life, and how many of you know that that is not true in our observation of life, right? You observe, I used to tell, I, I, I used to, 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 to talk, I, I used to engage on this issue of uh, of of the righteousness and, and, and the problem of evil and people who are evil getting good things happening to them and sometimes you look at some of the high-profile people in Malaysia, right? And you say, politicians, right? Uh, um, let's just say that some of them are not in power anymore, right? Um, in that time, you're like, wow, you, you're robbing, you are, you're, you're, you're conniving, you have people killed, left, right and centre and you seem to be prospering. That's not right. Why are you prospering? It doesn't make sense because I was taught that God will punish those who do wicked things and God will reward those who do righteous things. And righteous living doesn't seem to be rewarding. You are living in an Ecclesiastes style world where some, some of these moral cause and effect things that we are taught don't seem to play out that well. Can your faith stand? Do you have a resilient faith? that can stand up against all the, the, the 
the random or irrational or even you might say ungodly cause and effect that you see in this world. Wicked people do wicked things and they get goodness. It's like, and then we ask questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? How many of you have heard that question asked before? Right? We ask ourselves that question all the time. And people who waste their life somehow manage to bounce back from cancer and people who are godly and serving somehow don't, even though you pray for them, even though you're calling on God and you pray non-stop. Now, my friends, when I was ministering in the main church, Pastor Lee Chu used to always use this expression on us, right? When the rubber hits the road. Can your faith survive when the rubber hits the road? Because you can have the best articulated faith as a concept, as a theory. But when your rubber hits the road, can your faith survive? When it experiences the heat and the friction and the, and, and, and the, and the pain, the grief, when you're in a hospital bed or when you're by a hospital bed and you're praying for someone and you're calling on God to heal and you know God can heal, and you're believing with all your heart and still God chose not to heal. Let's just say. And with most of us have experienced that before. Especially with our loved ones. Can your faith survive? Because if you don't have a resilient faith, you're going to go out there and guess what? The world outside may, re may, may, may resemble an Ecclesiastes world a lot more than a Proverbs type of world. A lot of the, the cause and effect that we experience out there is, can sometimes be quite crushing. Can your faith survive? I'll tell you this. Your faith will not survive as long as it's only here. Your faith cannot survive as long as you inherited it from someone else and you never made it your own. I'll talk about this more in the third point. Your faith cannot survive if you never test it. You want to know if something is strong, you have to test it. When, people, when, when the fellas made the, mo the model for this black chair that you're on, eh, someone has to put pressure on it eh, before they mass produce it, right? And then they will put all kinds of weight on it, they will trash it, they will throw it, right? They test it. And when they know it's, it's resilient, it goes through, through, through pain and <laughs> torture, right? And all kinds of, of abuse and the chair holds up, they say, I know a normal human can sit on it, no problem. In fact, many normal people can sit on it, even abnormal people can sit on it, it will hold up. Why? We have subjected it to tests, right? And the same thing must be true of your faith. You must allow your faith to go through the grind, to go through the grind. But let me give you an encouragement. Your faith can survive because actually, you don't have to end up like Koheleth. If you can say it, Koheleth was quite bitter, right? If it, is, if it is Solomon, he is quite bitter. He is quite angry at the end of his life. Or maybe angry is not the word, but it's something close to, to, to jaded and angry. And I'll tell you why. Because you have the Holy Spirit. The cross took place after Ecclesiastes was written. Pentecost took place after the cross, after Ecclesiastes took place. And so today, you and I have the Holy Spirit in us. And because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have an advantage on the writer of Ecclesiastes. We have a power and we have a partner and we have a collaborator in our lives that exceeds what the writer of Ecclesiastes or at least the teacher in Ecclesiastes had. How do I know this? Because today, we have 
Bible verses that teach us this, right? James praying together with all, all of us. He says this, Consider it great joy, my brothers and my sisters, whenever you experience various trials. These are the very trials that I said a moment ago. These are the things that's going to test your faith, whether your faith is a real-world faith or whether your faith is just a concept, right? Consider it great joy when you experience trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith helps your faith to endure. It helps your faith to be resilient and strong and have a bounce-back ability. Amen? So the first thing we need to know as we enter the book of Ecclesiastes is not to be discouraged by it, but to allow all those questions to test us to beat us and take our faith and hammer away at it, chisel away at it. And let me, let me be real straight with you. Some parts of your faith that were poorly formed, they are going to crack. Some parts of your faith that were poorly formed will not survive the pressure. And in the Western world, there is a fancy schmancy name for it. It's called deconstruction. I didn't plan to go into this, but I'm just going to mention it. It's called deconstruction. It is when you were formed poorly with a false idea of God and with a false idea of church. And then you go through real life and, 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 and real life doesn't match your false idea, right, of God and church. And so when you go through that pressure, it chisels away at it and some parts fall. Some parts just break apart. And you say, oh my goodness, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. I don't know if I want to serve in church anymore. I experienced this hurt, I experienced this, this, and I don't know if I want this anymore. Hold still, because God is, I'm not saying it happens, it's this all the time, but in many of the times, God is allowing the malformed parts of your faith to be deconstructed, to be unconstructed, to be torn apart so that he can build on it not a golden calf but his very own image he can build over it because many of our golden calves need to go under the hammer and see if they break and I trust and hope that they will it may be a painful process please don't go through it alone it might be a new new place you enter into where you start to question some things. Please don't go through it alone. I'm not afraid of the questions you will ask. I'm not afraid of the questions you ask. God has had questions asked of His goodness, of His morality, of His justice, of His character for thousands of years. Brave people have been asking questions of Him, the most difficult questions He does not crack. So I'm not afraid of the questions you might ask of God. But I don't want you to do it alone because He built us for community. And oftentimes, if you were hurt, often you were hurt in community. And I trust that your healing should come in community as well. Amen? A resilient faith and risky games. I woke up this morning and I had a double take on this. And I thought, oh, I don't like the expression risky games. I would have chosen reckless games, you know. Um, but I was too late. I sent the deck in and, and uh, I'm going to stick with this, right? Um, but I want to show you that this teacher, likely Solomon, decides that he wants to do something. Now, he has all the privilege. Huh? I just want to lay it down. Huh? Solomon, if it's Solomon, and likely it is, is, has all the wealth all the platforms, 
all the power to do anything he wants. So if you were a working class fella down the street in some slum, you don't have the privilege to test life and living the way Solomon did. But Solomon had the privilege. And so this is what he said. King, uh, with a lot of privilege saying this, uh, I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body. In other words, he probably was relatively sober until he said, you know what? I see all these fellas getting drunk. It looks like a lot of fun. I don't know if it's fun. Let me test to see if it's fun, right? And then he pops a bottle of brandy, pours himself many, many drinks, and then next thing you know, he comes back and says, you know what? It's not fun, <laughs> right? So he's allowing himself to be tested, to be tested in these things, right? My mind's still gui guiding me with wisdom. It's, you go make of this what you will, okay? How wise it was, right? But I think what it means is that he approached this thing with some level of sobriety and almost like a scientific mind. I'm going to test this. I'm going to test this. I'm going to test alcohol. And after that, I'm going to test women. Then I'm going to test success. And, and he's all, he almost goes through all the list of the typical things. It's almost scientific precision, you know, like one after another. And I think that's what he means when he says that he, his wisdom remained in him, right? It's not as if he just like, ah, and like just ran around like a hedonist, right? He, he, he wasn't, okay? And then he says this, and how to grasp folly. Now, that's even more troublesome because he effectively said, I wanted to test what it's like to live a foolish life, right? I wanted to test the grasp, the whole of foolishness. Some people just seem to have a hold on foolishness. I want to test it to see if it, what it's like to live a foolish life until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their life. His experiment, uh, it goes on. Uh, he says this, I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. In other words, it's not just for a while. Huh? After he has servants, one generation later, he still has servants. So it's, it's, a, it's a prolonged experiment, right? Um, I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. Now we know, confirm this, Solomon, right? Okay. So, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Sure, more. Uncle, from a material point of view, yes, huh? we know this. Huh? From a material point of view, Israel in Solomon's era had the furthest borders. Israel in Solomon's era was free from perpetual skirmishes and warfare on the borders. You know why? Because he formed alliances with all of his neighbours. How? By marrying all their daughters, right? But that drew his heart away from God. So I'm not so sure uh, if you want to read surpass here, surpass in what metrics, okay? On what metrics is he surpassing? Certainly materially he did, okay? All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I was reading this again last night. 
And you know sometimes people say that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will indulge. Have you heard that before? It's quite true. What one generation will tolerate, their children, the next generation will indulge. When I read this, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I remembered that David tolerated gazing on Bathsheba and having her. But Solomon indulged it. He indulged it. All that my eyes desired. I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. He just went for broke, right? For I took pleasure in all my struggles. In, so, in other words, he's saying that, you know what? I can struggle. But you know what? You know, you know why I can take pleasure in my struggles? Because I'm going to reward myself for all my struggles by taking pleasure in everything, right? Anything I can lay my hands on, I'm going to take pleasure in it. And he says this, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found Havel, Havelim, Hakol, Havel. Everything is like smoke. Everything is elusive. I chased after wine and women, song and dance. I accrued wealth. I built mega projects. I did things to cause my name to endure forever. So I derma this thing and I made sure that thing had my name on it, right? <laughs> all of it is smoke. In the end, all of it just goes just like that. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the flavor. But I want to show you this. This man went on an extremely reckless exercise. And I'll be honest, I don't think he recovered from it. He says, with not a lot of self-awareness, that I had my wisdom with me the whole way. And maybe to some extent, he was sober enough and scientific enough about the process to know that he, he, could, he could see himself, I'm doing an experiment. But I don't think his heart and his spirit survived this experiment. Because we know that though he surpassed his father and all the other kings of Israel in terms of material splendor, nobody calls Jesus the son of Solomon. Even though technically he is part of that lineage, right? We call him the son of David. And why do we call him the son of David? Because he has the character of David. Or rather, David has the character of, uh, uh, of Christ. David does not have the character, uh, or Solomon does not have the character of Christ. If anything, Solomon's spirit was worn down and beaten off to shreds such that by the time he was old and grey, not only did he write Ecclesiastes, but the history books will tell you that his heart had left Yahweh. He had worshipped all these other gods and he had actually tolerated a lot of idolatry in Israel. And he set, he set the tone for the next generation. It is no wonder when he says, later you will see, if you go home and read your Ecclesiastes, you will say, what good is it to amass so much wealth and to build a huge empire? You give it to your next generation and you don't know what they're going to do about it. Right? He says that. You know what his next generation does? Rehoboam fights with the elders, causes the nation to be split and then half of that nation many years down the line completely gets eradicated. 
So Solomon is right, but I'm not quite so sure about his methods in finding out that this would be true. Now, I just want to say this, okay? I'm going to put a pause here, okay? He asked this question, how far should you go to test whether foolish living pays off? Now, I'm going to put a pause here, okay? Intentionally, I'm going to tell you this is a pause, okay? On the reckless experiment of Solomon. And I'm going to step aside to talk about an adjacent thing. It's not the same thing. I want to speak directly to those of you who grew up in a Christian home. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? Just give me a little thumbs up underneath, right? Okay, yeah. You grew up in a Christian home. If you grew up in a Christian home, and that includes my kids, you had your faith handed to you first. Your parents did not kind of give you free reign. Generally, they did not give you kind of like a blank slate and say, oh, you want to grow up, you can be anything you want to be, you know, and then somehow you ended up adopting the faith of your parents. Most of the time, they brought you to church. Most of the time, someone handed their faith down to you. It's most likely your parents, but it may not be. Now, if you grew up in a Christian home, I didn't. I'm a convert, right? If you grew up in a Christian home, your first faith will be handed down to you. It will be secondhand. And until and unless you make that faith your own and you learn that this is my faith, it's not just father's faith, or more often, it's not just mummy's faith, it is my faith and he is my God, such that if my parents are no more, I will still go to church. Or if my parents don't go to church, I will still go to church. Or if my parents go to a church that I don't jive with, I will find another church to go to. It is my faith, Yahweh is my God, Jesus is my Saviour, it's not just theirs, it's theirs and for them. It is mine for me, it is my faith. Now you need to go through the journey of discovering that it's your faith. And the journey to discover that it is your faith requires you to test whether it really is your faith. And for some of you, it means asking questions about your faith to see whether you really believe in it or not. Or whether, actually, I only seem to believe in it because my father taught me that way or mommy taught me that way, right? If you're answering that, that answer, it's not yet your faith. Or husband taught me, or wife taught me, she dragged me to church, I just follow. That's not yet your faith. You've got to make it your own. And if you... How many of you know Law of the Rings? Right? Now everybody raise their hands. <laughs> Law of the Rings has a typical hero narrative. When I say typical, I mean that you see the same archetype in all hero narratives like Harry Potter or whatever, right? Law of the Rings, you take... Take uh, um, Sam and, and, and what, what, what are their names, those hobbits, right? Frodo, Sam, is there a Mary? There's a Mary, right? These guys, they're just country bumpkins in the Shire, right? And there is a call outside of their kampong. They have to leave their kampong and like Peter walking alone to John Mark's house, they have to find courage find adventure, find daring, go through trouble, go through danger, go through near death, fulfill the quest, and then come home. And when they come home, they are different. The journey going out has transformed them so that when they come back, they are no longer just country bumpkins in the Shire. They are seasoned, mature, owners, of the Shire because now they know what's out there and now the Shire is really theirs 
is really theirs because they have experienced that and now they know what this is. And this is true for almost every hero narrative. It's the same pattern, it's called an archetype. Now, for those of you who grew up in church, you're going to need to test. Now, the boundaries are there for a reason. It's to make sure you don't go off the rails. But for those of you who grew up in church, you need to at some point go into uncomfortable places and your church don't need to encourage you there. Your work already takes you into uncomfortable places. Your work is probably going to take you to places where you have to ask yourself, will I do this deal or not? Right? Will I sign off on these documents or not? Right? That's what it means to go out of the boundaries of your safe church growing up, right? upbringing. And then it gets tested. And you get out there, you get weather-beaten, you're challenged, danger, near life, near death. Maybe this thing, if you sign and if it's wrong, you can, you can go to prison one. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. But you have to face all those things. And then when you come back to your Christian faith, you know whether your faith is real. And that's very important. And that's not the same as Solomon doing some reckless experiment with his life. But some of the patterns are the same. You do need to come face to face with the real world and how brutal and dangerous it can be before you can come back to your faith and say, I know it's real. And the Bible says it this way in the New Testament. It says this, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you what? The spirit of wisdom. Because today we have this spirit of wisdom. Where Solomon may not even have had uh, um, the Holy Spirit in him every day the way we post-Pentecost people do, Today, we can say, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. In other words, my friends, as you go out every day, I don't even need to beckon you out. You are already out there. Enter the Ecclesiastes world with the spirit of wisdom, with discernment to know what God is doing to know what God is saying, to know how God is maybe even breaking down some of the walls of, uh, uh, of false gods and rebuilding true image of God, faith in you. I want you to have a resilient faith. I don't want you to play risky games, but I do want you to really test your faith. And on this, I'll close. We need to have a robust idea of death. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, all the Hebrew people talking about death, they have pretty much one certain idea about what death is like. I'm going to read you a few examples from Ecclesiastes. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. Why? Because both will die. How is it that the wise dies just like the fool? He goes on to say in chapter 3, for the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. Wow. Why? Because he has material eyes only. Huh? Okay? People have no advantage over animals. All are going to the same place. He's talking about death again, right? Um, who knows if the spirits of the children of, of Adam go upwards and the spirits of the animals go downwards to the earth? Nobody knows. In other words, who cares if you're a goat or if you're a king? Both are going to die. He goes on to say, though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it is 
it has more rest than he. In other words, a man who has lived to 100 years but he is unsatisfied with all his wealth. It's, he's, it's better to be a stillborn child. Why? He says this, and if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. In other words, his idea of death is that everybody dies, they go to the same place. The Jewish people had a name for this. They called it Sheol. They call it Sheol, right? And if you look at your Old Testament, the Sheol is a Jewish name for the realm of the dead. It's not very, very well articulated one, huh? Sheol is just a place where everybody goes to die. When they die, they go to Sheol, okay? Some people, wicked people, they say, ah, this guy, wicked fellow, he's going to go to Sheol. But then even good people, they'll say, that they were also, my time has come, I'm just going to go down to Sheol, right? So there is, so it's a Jewish name for the realm of the dead. It seems to apply to everyone, righteous or wicked. And there is no clear concept of a division, like one compartment in Sheol is for the good people, one compartment in Sheol, there's no such concept, right? It's just not clear. There's no separation. It is only actually in the New Testament it is only in the New Testament that we start to see a compartmentalizing of people going to the dead, where there are compartments in the realm of the dead, let's for now call it Sheol, you know, for the wicked. And you hear this when Jesus says, it is better for you um, than for your whole body, you know, to be thrown into Gehenna. Now that's a word. It doesn't, it's not a good kind of Sheol, right? It's Gehenna, it's a place of burning and torture. Elsewhere he says, the rich man also died, and in Hades. It's death, the place of death, right? It's not, it's not something to be envied, but he also has the reverse. Jesus also says that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to, the, to Abraham's bosom. Now that sounds like a good place because there he found comfort. And to the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So wherever the place that people go to when they die, in Old Testament times, they only have one general idea. It's called Sheol, right? But actually, it's only in New Testament times that we start to see that actually they go, they all go, but the places seem to have behaved very differently, right? And, and, and it's not so clear. Now, I want, I want you to know this. I don't want you to give um, Ecclesiastes too much. I don't want you to criticize and dislike Ecclesiastes too much, okay? I also don't want you to think that this guy is just so cynical and bitter. I'll tell you one thing. Ecclesiastes is totally consistent with the rest of Old Testament in its limited idea about the afterlife. It is totally consistent with how the rest of Old Testament thinks of death and the place you go to when you die. Because the rest of Old Testament pretty much also says the same thing. You just go to this place. The only thing Ecclesiastes does differently is that it starts to question the worthwhileness if everybody dies and goes to the same place. That's what it does. It starts to ask if a lives righteously and dies B lives wickedly and dies And if they go to the same place Is it worth it To live like A That's the question And then in the New Testament Jesus shows us that they don't actually all go to exactly the same place And here's, here's the important thing Because this is the basis For his entire pessimistic view of life In Ecclesiastes Is that he has a limited pre-Jesus understanding of death. And if you have a pre-Jesus understanding of death and you don't have a resurrected king, why wouldn't you form the same conclusions? No, I'm really asking you. Why wouldn't you draw, derive the same 
conclusions. If really there is no resurrection of Jesus, if really there is no salvation from our sinful lives, if really there is nothing more to the grave than just the grave, then even Paul agrees we are to be most despised. We are to be most unfortunate. And we might as well eat, drink and live it up. In fact, Paul derives the same end conclusions as, as, as Solomon. He says that if there is no resurrection, we have no better hope for an afterlife than this, then you know what? Forget it. Just live it up. Just live it up. Enjoy the fruit of your labor, you know, because tomorrow we die. But there is more to it. The author of, of Ecclesiastes did not, could not have seen more to it. And you might see that actually, to be fair to the author of Ecclesiastes, most of Old Testament people could not see beyond their present life. It is actually only the prophets who see in a transcendent way. And that's what they're for, right? They're prophets. They're supposed to see beyond. But the kings generally did not. Here and there in the Psalms, you see a messianic kind of thing popping up. Not common. The rulers did not. Certainly the teachers like Ezra and, and, and all that, they did not. They could not see beyond this. So this teacher also did not. But today we have it as hindsight because Christ has come. Christ has come to live. Christ has come to die. Christ has come to enter the tomb and on the third day be resurrected so that today we have a resurrected Jesus. We who have a resurrected Jesus have far more robust death than those who don't. We have a far more robust death to look forward to because in dying, we truly live. In death, we step out of this mortal coil which is doomed to die at some point and we step into eternal life. We step into everlasting living. We step into a resurrected body in the future where you will no longer have cancer, no longer have back pains, no more osteoporosis or dental problems, no more, no more sickness, no more whatever you want to call it. And by the way, no more sorrow. And it will wipe away every tear from our eye. That's metaphorical because if you're tearing, it means that there was something to make you cry. It means there was sorrow. It's metaphorically going to wipe away every tear from your life. And you will enjoy life and joy forever. We have a robust death. Now in Ecclesiastes, there may not have been one, but we do. Let, can I have the worship team on stage? And team, I know earlier I said, let's, let, let's just jump into Spirit Breakout. Let's just start worshipping with Yeshua. Yeah, let's just start worshipping Yeshua because it is because of our Lord Jesus and the beauty of the cross the beauty of His sacrifice, the beauty of His resurrection that earns us, it earns us the privilege that even Koheleth didn't have that privilege of being, of having a resurrected Saviour. So today, in closing, I said it to you earlier already, right? A resilient faith, no risky games, no reckless games rather, right? but a robust death. Face the realities of this world, knowing that we live as resurrected children, resurrected in our current faith, so that we have King Jesus. And one day, we will experience the full resurrection. The full resurrection. Let's rise to our feet. 
Let's rise to our feet. We're just going to worship. And I want, I want you to be drawn towards this, towards our Lord Jesus. To be drawn towards Jesus. And as you sing, as you sing that your beloved is most beautiful, I don't want you to just think of a handsome, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. That also needs to be deconstructed. But I want you to think of the cross and the beauty of His death and resurrection. May the Lord bless you. Oh, may the Lord bless you, church. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May He keep your faith as you wander and venture out into a difficult world. May He keep your faith. May He bless you. May He keep you. May He turn His face towards you and be so abundantly gracious to you. May He turn and lift up His countenance toward you and give you shalom. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.